0: Well, this morning, we're continuing our study of the epistle to the Galatians. And today we're beginning chapter four. And just a reminder to what we've learned so far in the first three chapters, um, there were those in the early church who were wanting to impose upon new Christians the rigorous demands of the law, including the law requiring circumcision. The apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, makes it clear that we are not saved by the works of the law, but by grace alone, given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And chapter 4 begins by relating to us how we are in bondage to the law and how we've been set free by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the victory that he has won for us. As I read our passage of Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, please pay close attention, for this is the word of God and not the word of men. So, reading from Galatians 4, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> now I say, <clears throat> as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that you've given to your church and the edification that you give to us. I pray that in all these things you would receive glory and that you would teach us this morning from your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's five points that I see in this passage. and Lord willing, we'll, we'll see these points uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his illumination, and we'll be able to apply these truths to our lives. So the first point I see is the law as bondage. And then the second is children and slaves. Third is Christ and his work. And then fourth is sonship realized and obtained. And then lastly, we'll talk about leaving slavery behind. <clears throat> so Galatians four three reads, <clears throat> So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So scripture tells us in many places that the law represents bondage to us. Now typically bondage, is associated with sin, and yet it's through the law that we have a knowledge of sin. So though the law itself is not sin, it reveals our sin and places a huge burden upon our shoulders. We read in Romans 7, verses 7 through 11, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not, not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. We are a sinful people. And is there anything more discouraging than knowing what we should do, but feeling powerless to do it? The alcoholic knows that it is a sin to get drunk. And some well-meaning individuals have strived within their own power to conquer that temptation with varying degrees of success. Organizations such as Alcoholics Anonymous have arisen to try to help such people overcome their addiction. But even that organization recognizes that people need help, quote, from a higher power. And yet, if that higher power is not Christ alone, this burden is too great to bear. Drunkenness is just one example each one of us is tempted daily by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil to sin according to our own specific temptations. You may not be tempted in the same ways as others, but as fallen men, you can be sure that there are sinful things that you in particular are tempted with. And when you succumb to these temptations, the law stands ever ready to condemn you, and to beat you down, and to bring down God's justice upon your head. The early church was obsessed with the issue of circumcision. Now, I think, in my personal opinion, is that the appeal of focusing on this singular command of the law is that it's really a one-and-done type of obedience. It's really hard to fall away from your physical circumcision. Acts 15, 1 through 12, describes a separate time that this same issue arose to the forefront. <clears throat> so I'm going to read that to you this, now. <clears throat> Acts fifteen one through 12 And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem To the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church, and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. <clears throat> now, P- Peter asked a very good question that shows his own weakness in this area. <clears throat> <If> he, <clears throat> he says that our fathers, nor we, have been able to bear the works of the law. when what I find interesting here is that the immediate subject in question was circumcision. And here were the disciples. How were the disciples of the fathers unable to bear circumcision? And as I mentioned before, part of the appeal of this law is that once you have obeyed the command, you have a permanent outward sign. But even then, their inward compliance, um, their hearts were still corrupt. The Apostle Paul expounds on this in Romans two twenty-five through twenty-nine. If you want to turn that to Romans 2, 25-29. For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. but If you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you? Who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So then the Judaizers in Galatians, and here in Acts 15, are trusting in the outward obedience of circumcision while ignoring the weightier matters of the law. I'm sorry, the weightier matters of the heart, because the heart then is what is corrupt in this instance. Um, Here in Acts 15.11 it's emphasized that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So realize what this is saying. Though the law was given under the old covenant, there has always been only one way of salvation, and that is through grace alone in Christ alone. The primary purpose of the law throughout all of time is to show us our need of a Savior, to make us realize that this burden is too great for us to bear and that we need someone to do it for us. And the Israelites were told of this coming Messiah, and yet given the commands of the law. The types and shadows were not near as clear to them as the revelation of Jesus Christ is to us. So we see the natural human cycle of good intentions to follow God, a falling away to follow, judgment of God, and the repentance and turning again to God. And it's during this time of repentance and turning again to God where they should have admitted their own inability to fulfill the works of the law and place their trust in the coming Messiah to fulfill it on their behalf. Another example of the law being a burden that we are unable to keep involves that of the Pharisees imposing things upon the people that they themselves are unwilling or unable to do. So, for that, let's consider Matthew 23 1 through 4. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves. In the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So, in this case, not only were the Pharisees not doing everything, that they required of others, but the things that they said to do, uh, they did it with a lot of show and pride in their, in, their, in their status, who they were. Because verses 5 through 7 go on to read, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylacteries, and lengthened the tassels of their garments. And they loved the place of honor at banquets, and the chief seats at the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called by men, Rabbi, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. <clears throat> so now to add insult to injury when it comes to the law, not only are we unable to keep the law, but all the promises of the law and judgments of the law are under a huge if clause. Like a casino or an advertisement of the state lottery or even your best friend trying to recruit you into his latest MLM. We see the the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28, describing all the blessings that we can expect from the faithful keeping of the law. Now, Deuteronomy 28 is rather lengthy, so I'm going to resist my urge to read it in its entirety. But I will just read some of the catchphrases that I incidentally um, I used to hear, frequently hear in the charismatic church that I used to attend. The verses go something like this. In verse three, we read, blessed shall, be you, shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Verse four tells us, blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. And then verse six tells us, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall be, you be when you go out. Verse eight, the Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Verse 12, the Lord will open up for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Now, these are just five verses out of the 14. I've skipped around a little bit. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that I left out some key passages that are majorly important. It's the fine print, so to speak, of the blessings under the law. So let me now fill in some of those gaps. Verses 1 and 2 start out with, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And verse 9 goes on to tell us, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways. And then in 13 and 14 we read, The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath, if... You listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Those of you of you who know me know that I'm a computer programmer by occupation, and programming makes a lot of logical sense. And one of the basic tools that I use every day in my life's work is an if-then clause. And simply put If something is true, like a variable equals a certain given value, then the program will perform a certain action. Else, or in other words, if that original statement is not true, then the program will perform a different action. Deuteronomy is extremely logical here. Verse 15 marks the beginning of the else clause. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The remaining 52 verses go on to describe the calamity that will come upon the children of Israel if they do not do all of those if statements. Remember, there, are, there were only 14 verses of blessings described, but there are 53, including verse 15, that describe the curses that will befall the poor soul and the poor nation of Israel who does not measure up. The remainder of the chapter undoes every single blessing promised in the first 14 verses and then piles on additional curses like cannibalism as we read in verse 53. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Now lest you think that the conditional nature of the law was only for the Old Testament? Let's look at a couple of the interactions that our Lord had with people when he walked on the earth. In Luke 10, starting in verse 25, we read, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So there's a few things that I want to point out about this passage. Right off the bat, the lawyer asked the wrong question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the lawyer was not placing his trust in Christ to give him eternal life as a gift. He wanted to know how he could earn it. Our Savior graciously answers his question with another question. What is written in the law? The lawyer's answer was accurate. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. The Lord tells us in Matthew that on these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that's because loving God and loving neighbor are the summation of the 10 commandments. The first four commandments tell us our duty, what we must do toward God. And the last six commandments tell us our duty again, what we must do toward our neighbor. And these commandments are the very same ones that are required In Deuteronomy 28 that we talked about earlier. Consistent with this scripture, our Lord answers this lawyer in verse 28 with, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is further backed up from Leviticus 18.5 and Ezekiel 20.11. You can look those up on your own, but the basic message is, do this and live. The lawyer's last question is just as bad as his first. Verse 29 says, But wishing to justify himself, now that's a problem. He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now I imagine that the lawyer didn't ask him, Jesus, this question out of genuine concern for his neighbor. But rather, I believe he was seeking to find out what the bare minimum is, is that he could do in order to earn salvation of an eternal life all on his own. And Jesus answered this final question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This parable was filled with imagery that made the lawyer squirm. The neighbor wasn't those like the, the lawyer, either a priest or a Levite, those upstanding members of society. No, the neighbor was a Samaritan, a race hated by the Jews, who in their opinion did everything wrong when it came to worship. And yet, Jesus called the young lawyer to love those unlike himself. And I ask you, who is your neighbor? God has called us to love the unlovable. And the point of all this is that we can't do this in our own power. Our prayer should be, Lord, love the unlovable through me. Use me as a willing vessel to carry out your will, because you know that I will never do it on my own. In the very same book of Luke, later in chapter 18, starting in verse 18, we see something. Uh, someone else asked the the same wrong question that the lawyer asked in chapter 10. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This time the Lord doesn't quiz the young man. He proceeds to tell him the demands of the second table of the law. Knowing full well that the man's response would, what his response would be. <clears throat> and when the man replied, just as the Lord expected, all these things I have kept from my youth, the Lord Jesus could have just called him a liar right then and there. But rather than confront him in his lie, our Lord sets out a situation in which he could prove that the man, even at this moment, was not fulfilling the first table of the law and even the first command in the law. The Lord knew that the young man's money was a God that he had set up in his life, violating the first commandment. So beginning in Luke 18, 22, we read, When Jesus had heard this, he said to them, him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now brothers and sisters, we are living... In the richest nation in the history of the world, the poorest among us enjoy things that kings could never have dreamed of, even 300 years ago. I drove between 30 and 45 miles to get here this morning. There's no way that in 300 years ago, someone could have made that distance without the luxury of an automobile. And yet even in this car, we had a temperature controlled environment the whole way. So beware if any of you would want to seek eternal life apart from Christ. I haven't seen too many camels passing through the eyes of needles. Now the next point I want to talk about is children and slaves. Having discussed the law as bondage, the scripture makes the analogy of us being slaves to this bondage. Returning to our passage in Galatians, the scripture makes the point in verses 1 and 2, now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. Now, there is a lot packed into these two verses. But first of all, God's people are likened unto children until the date set by the Father. Old Testament believers were saved in the same way we are today by placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, when the Old Testament believers walked the earth, the second person of the Trinity was not as apparent as he is now. The Old Testament saints uh, saw him in types and shadows. And there were even hints um, as to his name when we see men raised up to be used by God, like Joshua. Or the son of David, whom Solomon foreshadowed. So how is there a similarity between a slave and a child? The fifth commandment tells us, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Our Baptist catechism expounds the fifth commandment to say to any that we are in subjection to. The question reads, what is required in the fifth commandment? And the answer given is the fifth commandment requireth that preserving the honor and performing the duties Belonging to everyone in their several places and relations, as superiors, inferiors, or equals. <clears throat> so therefore, God's law requires both children and slaves to honor those over, him, over them. Ephesians chapter 6 reinforces this. Verse 1 reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And verses 5 through 7 say, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. The example of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to his earthly sinful parents as a child is given to us in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. And I'll just read verse 51 for you right here, because it says, as he went down with them and came to Nazareth, he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And I skipped the context of that. This was when Jesus was a boy, and he was in the temple. The, the, uh, his Mary and Joseph had already traveled like a full day's journey before they realized that he wasn't with the rest. And so they went back to find him. And yet in this case, it says that Jesus subjected himself to his parents. And Mary treasured all these things in her heart. So both slaves and children are under guardians and managers. And this serves many purposes. Now, those of you who are parents can relate. Children have to be supervised, primarily for their own benefit. Children are not allowed Uh, to many things that uh, adults or their parents take for granted every day. There's a reason why medicine bottles say keep out of the reach of children. There are reasons why young children are not allowed to use sharp knives. It's so much so that a parent has to cut their, their food for them. And slaves may be kept under subjection for a different reason. A slave is to do the will of his master. The best example I could think of in this regard is Joseph in the book of Genesis. Genesis 39, 1 through 4. I'm going to turn there and read that for you too. Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Who had taken him down there? And the Lord was with Joseph, so that he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. So Joseph was not free to do whatever he wanted in Potiphar's house, though as he earned Potiphar's trust, he gained more and more freedom, where he eventually managed Potiphar's estate. And yet his slavery is what kept Joseph from fleeing entirely uh, the unwelcome advances of Potiphar's wife. Joseph was a slave, and he couldn't just totally flee from that uh, temptation that was put in front of him. When it comes to slavery, Paul tells us in First Corinthians 7.21 that if we are able to become free, then we should pursue that. In any case, we must realize that we will always be a slave to something or someone. <clears throat> the biggest question is this, who is your owner? Romans 6.20-22 gives us a poignant reminder that we are slaves to God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. But whether slavery or simply childhood is the reason Guardians and managers were placed over us, quote, until the date set by the Father. So we we read back in Galatians three twenty four that the law was called our tutor or our schoolmaster, and this is the concept expounded here. The law keeps us behaving as we ought, under the positive reinforcement of blessings and the negative consequences of discipline when we are disobedient. The date set by the Father. Is told to us in Galatians four four, which brings us to our third point Christ and His work. Galatians four four reads, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now in this verse both the divinity and the humanity of Christ is emphasized. God sent forth his son, so the second person of the Trinity is truly God, and yet he was born of a woman. So he is truly man. The verse goes on to say that he was born under the law. Now up until now we've seen the bondage that the law represents. And we've seen how children are no different than slaves. And here comes Christ. He was said to have been born under the law and coming as an infant, a human child. Christ did indeed suffer the bondage of the law. But the bondage of the law was different for Christ than it is for for us, Jesus did not have a sin nature. There was no condemnation under the law for Christ in the deeds that he did, in the words that he said, or even in the thoughts that he had. Jesus lived a perfect life. and He is the only one who ever lived who could have actually earned eternal life. But then again, he already had eternal life. He is the only man who ever lived before he was conceived in his mother's womb. The bondage that Christ suffered under the law was the penal substitutionary atonement, whereby Christ kept the entire law on behalf of his people and suffered the wrath of God for them. When Galatians 4.4 4 reads, when it speaks of the fullness of time coming, what we're seeing is the coming of the new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied the word of the Lord, starting in Jeremiah 31, verses 31-34. through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this covenant is a much better covenant. Jesus came and fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, according to Matthew 7 I'm sorry Matthew 5 17 through 18 and this is something that we could never do and yet because Christ was fully man he accomplished it on our behalf as our federal head and he's been called the second Adam because of what we read in Romans 5 12 through 15 therefore just as through one man sin entered, entered into the world and death through sin And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the, did the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And because Christ bore all the penalties for breaking God's law while crediting us with his own keeping of it, he can confidently declare to us as he does in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And remember earlier when we read that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 18:26 and 27 explain this. They who heard it said, "Then who can be saved?" But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So then, through the work of Christ alone, it is possible for sinful man to inherit eternal life. And the question is not, what must I do to inherit eternal life, but rather, what has Christ done to credit me with eternal life? And the answer to that question is the crux of the gospel. In the passage from Acts earlier, We're believing Pharisees. We're insisting that new Gentile believers be circumcised. Peter answers them, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So our next point is sonship realized and obtained. This is our fourth point because it's the work that Christ has done in Galatians 4, 5 tells us so that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Isn't it amazing that undes- undeserving sinners uh, would be adopted by the Almighty God, the King over all creation? When we hear of adoption in our own time and in our own country, we often think of adopting young children or babies. But in ancient times, sons were often adopted as full-grown adults so that being established as a full-grown adopted son of God, we are no longer under guardians or managers. In fact, the Holy Spirit cries out from our own hearts, Abba, Father, according to Galatians 4.6. Christ has accomplished and applied our redemption through his active and passive obedience. The Holy Spirit has enabled us to call the first person of the Trinity, Our Father, If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And this is God's choice, not our own. Consider John 15, verses 15 through 16. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it to you. One last comparison that I want to make on slavery versus sonship. Consider John eight thirty-five through 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If you are a son of God, you will be a son of God forever. And that brings us to our final point of leaving slavery behind. The Apostle Paul is exasperated with the Galatians. We read as early as chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Then in Galatians 3, verse 1, we read, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you <coughs> before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? <coughs> Excuse me. However, okay, so can't you just hear the exasperation in Paul's voice, in Paul's voice here in Galatians 4, 8 through 9? However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Or I like to say here, as R.C. Sproul would have said, what's wrong with you people? I would ask you the same thing. After hearing about the bondage of the law, the equating of children with slavery, the glorious message of Christ and his work, then the realization of our own sonship and the inheritance that he has won for us, then why in the world would we all run so headstrong back into the very same slavery from which Christ has rescued us? This makes absolutely no sense. And there there may be those hearing me this morning who've never made a profession of faith. If so, then I urge you to repent and to place your trust in Christ alone for your salvation. There are no works that you can do to inherit eternal life. But I would imagine that the majority of those hearing me today are professed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to you, my brothers and sisters, I want to urge you to continue trusting Christ and his works alone for your salvation. Don't turn to your own works. There's no reason after having been saved by grace alone to revert back to our works-based righteousness. Remember that as believers, we do good, good works in response to the, to the work that Christ has already done on our behalf. Our good works show that we are believers. So I'm not saying don't do any good works, but what's your motivation for doing these good works? We should do these good works to glorify Christ in us and show the world that we are We belong to him, that we are his children. They don't make us or keep us as believers. It's Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. So I urge you today to rest in his finished work. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the works that you have done in winning our salvation, in suffering the wrath of God on our behalf. Lord, we could never do it on our own. We needed one who was both fully God and fully man to be able to walk out this perfect life of obedience and then to suffer the wrath of God for us. We can never thank you enough. That should be our prayer every day is to thank you for the salvation, for that eternal life that you have won for your people. And Lord, we do thank you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would impart this into the Hearts of the, of my hearers of this word, for it is your word that you've spoken. Be with us in the coming week and let us minister this gospel to those we come across in our paths. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.